Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, I sit down with Peter Finter. Peter is the CMO of CyberGRX, and we chat about two really interesting topics. One is all around alignment, but we often hear alignment and we think about marketing and sales. This is about alignment with your finance department. And the finance relationship with the CFO is so key to determining your budget and the flexibility you have to hit targets and manage expectations across the entire organization. We take that conversation and we also manage to talk about how do we create a predictable revenue engine? And part of that is meeting the customer in ways where we can create predictability. To do that, we need to be personalized. This conversation hits on so many hot topics. I can't wait for you to listen to my chat right now with Peter Finter. Peter, thank you so much for finding time. I, I'm excited to chat about your journey. Let's start with how you landed this opportunity at CyberGRX. Well, thanks, Randy. Great to be with you. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting when you look back over your career to figure out how you ended up where you where you end up. And the, the, the role that I have here at CyberGRX as CMO, I joined in June of last year. I'd left my previous company in February. And so I had a chance to talk to quite a number of different folks about various opportunities. And I would say the most significant kind of connections came through mutual investors. And in this particular case, one of our investment firms from Couchbase um, suggested that I meet with Fred Knipe, who is our founder CEO. And having met with maybe 10 or 12 CEOs over that period of three months or so, um, Fred just stood out to me as being different from the average CEO. And, uh, and I would say that probably comes down to his focus on building a company uh, that he wanted to get up and go to work to uh, every day. Um, not many CEOs have described their companies that way. That intrigued me straight away. Um, so that started the journey for me to uh, end up here. That's it. That's great. And I, I hear this so much, the importance of the sales pitch from the CEO. I'm curious, mm-hmm. though, because this isn't your first CMO gig, third time now as a CMO leader and you've led marketing teams obviously prior to that in VP roles but what was different about the process you took on to find a CMO role the third time versus the first because I feel like many people I speak to the first time they're like I just wanted to be CMO yeah super that's a great question actually and you're right third time uh, third time's the charm as they say (laughs) um but I, I think to step back to my first CMO gig like I was uh running a very large team had a fairly large company, 10,000 employee company, 4 billion revenue company. And I ran a very large demand generation team. And I was approached by a recruiter who said, hey, I've got this great opportunity at uh, this company called Gigamon. Uh, what do you think? And my initial reaction was, huh, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. I'm not sure I really have what it takes to be a CMO. I've done lots of different things in marketing, and we can talk more about that. But I was questioning myself. And I talked to one of my mentors, and he said, well, Peter, am I right in thinking you have a big birthday coming up? I said, well, yeah. Well, yes. In the next couple of years, I guess you could call it a big birthday. And he said, you know what? It's a lot harder to get these gigs after those big birthdays than it is before. 
you might just want to give this one a shot. So frankly, I jumped in to my first gig, not really knowing a thing about it, only to discover that my first job uh, in that gig was to write the press release announcing our public offering. <laughs> we no went IPO in the first week that I joined the company. So I found myself going from not sure if I want to be a CMO to, oh my God, I'm a CMO in a public company and spent the next uh, three, four years at that company learning what it means to be fully exposed to the wide world as a CMO, which is a fairly baptism of fire experience, I'll be honest. The second CMO role that I took on was at a much earlier stage company. We were, as it turns out, five years pre-IPO when I joined Couchbase. And it was a very different technology space. It was unfamiliar to me. I jumped into a NoSQL database environment. And you know, I like to think that a CMO has a good grasp of the underlying offering. What is the value that you're creating for your customers? If you don't understand your customers, that's a really tough thing to do. So steep learning curve there. The third time through, what I was thinking about was two things. One, I really enjoy building from the ground up. So earlier stage was good, but I wanted to get past product market fit. And so I was looking for a, some, a company that was at that stage of maturity. They'd identified a real problem. They built a product which was credible. They had some sense of what made their product successful, but they needed to scale rapidly. And specifically in this case, they'd more or less plateaued from a revenue growth point of view, and they needed to kickstart and move in a new direction. That was important to me, but more important to me, honestly, was the culture of the leadership team, which starts with the CEO. But I got to meet other members of that leadership team and investors to get a real sense as to whether actually I wanted to get up and go to work every day and do this for the third time. It's hard work being a CMO, as all of your audience will appreciate. Absolutely. No, I mean, I mean you, you walked through just some of the milestones, especially and those are roller coasters uh, going through those. So signing up for it each time, and especially to your point, what I find interesting is that you, I mean, if, if you go back in your career, which people may not know, you were at some really large organizations, Nortel, True. Juniper, Networks. I mean, these are massive organizations where, you know, you're, you're a cog in the machine versus building the machine. I'm curious why it is that you've continued to go smaller. You hit on that, uh, you know, 10,000 person companies, quite a door to walk into versus I believe now it's 175 employees and, and only what, eight marketers? That's right. Yeah, we have a pretty small marketing team, although growing rapidly. So if anyone's interested, please do let me know. Yeah, I would say that the appeal for me of going to the earlier stage is that you get the sense of connectedness across the entire company. I, it's actually a very exciting phase when you are able to influence essentially every part of the company, not just your own function. You know, when you join a big company, you're typically in that silo that is your function um, and you get to influence that, obviously. But the smaller the company, the more it matters that you have that connectedness across the entire thing. And that was very appealing to me. I also think that it gives you a chance to experiment more. You know, and I've, I've realized as I get older and I've had more experience it's more fun to take risks in what you do. Now, obviously, not foolishly, and you still need to deliver the number, and that's not easy to do, but it gives you a chance to try out new things. And I, I found that to be very stimulating, and it keeps me engaged. I want to come to work and do something interesting every day, not just more of the same. So I, it's interesting. I, I'm pulling words from your answer there because I had circled oh. these on my paper prepping for, for our chat today. And on uh -huh. your LinkedIn, you had the words... I'm going to read it right off my page here, uh, that, that you work to solve complex business issues by connecting, you know, people and departments. So 
You use that yeah. word connection yeah. deliberately, I'm sure. Connect is in, in quotations on, on your LinkedIn description. Who are some of the most important departments that you've had to connect as a CMO versus a marketing leader needing to obviously connect? Our marketing team is tough these days, but what is yeah. what is that toughest group to connect into in your opinion? I think the one that is often scariest for marketers is the finance team because they tend to see it as the kind of the budget holders who, you know, bless you with money or don't, as the case may be. And there's a tremendous dependency. As marketers, we are paid to spend money, let's be honest. We are a cost. And we right. hope that the, the investment that we make drives a return for the company. Uh, that makes us extremely relevant to CFOs. But actually, we're relevant to CFOs for a different reason, which is that um, we probably have almost the longest time horizon of any of their peers in the, the executive suite, meaning that we think about the market development over a two, three, five-year period. And arguably, your CTO, your head of R&D or engineering, is equally thinking pretty long-term because usually they're making architectural decisions which have influence for the long-term. So those are natural bedfellows, right? And they should be because we need to be able to cast vision. We need to be able to tie back to why are we building this in the first place? What makes this unique? How do we uniquely solve our customers' problems, not just today, but into the future? So there's a natural sort of tendency to gravitate both towards the product technology organization, and it goes without saying that sales is the make or break for a CMO. I've never, ever met a CMO that's been successful without building a strong partnership in sales, and one or, one or, or both of you will leave when the company is not doing so great. So it really hinges on that partnership. But the one that I think is hardest for CMOs to establish and really build is with finance. And yet, it's such an important relationship to get right. You know, I, I, I thought I was giving you a softball to go with the sales answer. And, and I like that you right. took it and, and you turned it into a curveball with, with the finance piece. And I couldn't agree more with you. You know, one of the things that I've seen that's sometimes tricky is when you have a new marketing leader who comes in in the middle of a fiscal year yeah. has very different plans than the marketing leader who is in place when that budget plan is put into place mm -hmm. and most of that uh, that reconnection if you will needs to happen with finance out of the gate to ensure that that new leader has that flexibility how have you tackled that problem well, I think the first thing is to be proactive about it. You know, don't wait for the CFO to come to you. Um, you are, it's your responsibility to go and set the agenda and to convince them that you're a safe bet. At the end of the day, like VCs, one of the things that's great about private companies, in my opinion, especially VC-backed companies, is that they're essentially betting on people. VCs bet on people and rely on people to come up with the right ideas and the right solutions and figure out what the right market is. But that's essentially what they're putting money into. And CFOs in private companies think like VCs. They think about how much are they willing to put at stake? How much can they overreach? How conservative do they need to be? How comfortable do they feel about future growth projections? If you are effective as a, as a marketing leader, you are going to become a very strong partner to the CFO because you're going to help him understand why he should have confidence in the revenue growth of the future. He's going to talk to the sales leader, of course, to validate anything that you say, but the reality is the sales leader is thinking about one, two, three quarters ahead, probably, whereas marketers can think four, six, eight quarters ahead, and we absolutely have to because we're investing in demand generation activities, which do not translate into pipeline or bookings overnight, as we are all very well aware. 
So if you're not able to show the CFO the future growth that will come from your investments, then frankly, you're not going to be effective. So my advice is day one, you join that company, go and spend some time with the CFO and start to get a sense for what has their experience been. Many times CFOs have been burned by marketers who take that adage, you know, 50% of my advertising spend, you know, is wasted, but I just don't know which half, right? And they think about marketers as, as basically just disregarding fiscal responsibility. And so your first job is really to convince the CFO, you are going to be a good partner, you're going to spend money wisely, and you are going to take care of his interests as you think about go to market. Um, they all desperately want the ARR growth, do not get me wrong, but they don't know how to get it. And they look to you as a CMO to help guide that conversation. That's great advice. I, I think every marketing leader should listen to this and every CFO probably wants to hire you now uh, if they hear this. Uh, we're going to take a break. You've bridged us really well to the other side of this break, which is talking about go-to-market strategies right here on The Marketer's Journey. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. A small but super important point that Peter made in that chat was that you as the marketing leader, you as the CMO, need to bring your plan to the CFO. You need to engage this CFO. Now in the CFO's defense, they're there to put the right governance in through the company and they're gonna use best practices. But sometimes you may have a vision that they don't see yet. So I've seen too often a scenario where the marketing leader says, well, this is what finance gave me. Well, it's not on us to always take what we're given. It's on us to challenge, but we need to challenge with models and predictability. Peter's conversation today is all about that predictability. And after this break, you're gonna hear him hit on how we create predictability in the relationship throughout our entire organization. Peter, before we took a break there, you talked about aligning with the CFO and a big part mm -hmm. of alignment is not just what will happen in the future, but making it happen and getting the CFO and the CEO all to believe that your forecasts are going to come true. How have you managed to simply manage expectations and not overpromise, mm -hmm. whether it's when you come in or you're planning towards that next year? That is an excellent question, Randy, and it's a very difficult thing uh, at first because they're hiring you for a reason. I think the first thing you really want to establish as a CMO is what is the real problem that the company think that they have and what type of CMO are they looking for? In the case of the company that I just joined, we had a situation where our ARR growth had more or less stalled out. We had a number of quarters where we just weren't seeing that incremental growth that we were expecting. And so 
actually the company decided to hire both a new CRO and a CMO simultaneously. As it happens, my buddy, John, who is our CRO, was hired just a few weeks before me. So he did interview me to make sure that I was the CMO that he wanted, but the company knew that they needed a new go-to-market strategy. And so the first thing that I did was to say, let's keep this simple, right? Because we can get overwhelmed with data, metrics, KPIs, it can get crazy. And I proposed three metrics that we would keep an eye on and that we would focus on every week, every month, every quarter. And those three KPIs were, first of all, demand generation ROI. So what is the expectation for every dollar of marketing in terms of pipeline that could be generated? The second is pipeline conversion to bookings, which is a fairly obvious one, except in this particular case, in order to make it manageable, we focus on what we call walk-in pipeline to bookings, which means the pipeline available at the beginning of the quarter with a scheduled close date of that quarter compared to the bookings at the end of the quarter. What's really important to know about that metric is it is not a win rate and it is not a classic conversion rate because in practice, not much of what you start a quarter with actually does book in the same quarter. Right. But as a, ra as a ratio, what's interesting, Randy, about that is as a ratio, it's remarkably consistent. So you can start to pick up with just a few quarters of history how your business will perform, no matter how well you manage that sales process, no matter how much you train those salespeople, it's remarkable how stable that metric is. So it's good for you to know it for your business. Right. It almost sounds like it's a, it's a view of the velocity of, of your, your cycle at the same time. It is a combination of actually forecast accuracy, if you think about it, right? What right. is pipeline? It is a sales rep view as to when this particular deal will likely close at a specific value, which means it's a forecast, right? But the interesting thing is, despite the variability in salespeople and despite the various sales technology you know, methodologies and sales leadership approaches, it's still remarkable how consistent it is. The third metric that we focus on is what we call sales productivity, which is for each type of sales rep, how many opportunities at what value are they creating in a given quarter? So we think about that because we care about ramping reps rapidly, right? We want to know that reps are becoming ramped reps. That's really hard to say at this time it's, in the morning. It's an amazing time to sir. You, you brought that on yourself, that one. I but... totally did. I walked right into that, all of my own making, Randy. Um, <laughs> but when you start to think about those three particular metrics, what's great about them is you get definitive data every single quarter, and you can manage that even mid-quarter which CFOs absolutely love because what they care about is validating the forecast. You said you would do this. Are you on track to do it? Did you do it? If you repeat that exercise two or three quarters, the confidence level of that CFO is riding pretty damn high and they flip from becoming the kind of conservator of the budget. No, I'm not going to give you another dime until you prove yourself to suddenly, as happened to me in my only second quarter here, my CFO team came to me and said, Peter, are you sure you're spending enough on demand gen? You might want to up the spend here. Let me put another three quarters of a million dollars into your budget for this year, just to make sure that we can really maintain the pace that you're at at this point in time. Well, I don't know about you, Randy, or your audience, but that was honestly the first time in my entire That's career. Amazing. I had someone coming offering money to spend in marketing, but that happens if you can start to build that confidence and trust by basically showing up the way that you say you're going to show up. That's not easy to do, but if you can get there, it's an amazing place to be. I love that that pass last point rather uh, is just fantastic. And every marketer wants that and asks for it. But as you said, the answer often is show me that you can live up to the expectation. Mm -hmm. and, and these metrics, 
just to recap them again, demand gen ROI, pipeline conversion to bookings, and sales productivity really does give you a good understanding of both the metrics and the individuals behind it. I want to throw another factor, though, in into this equation, which is the buyer themselves. Because, yeah. you know, it's it's one thing for us to have the right channels and it's one thing for us to have our reps, you know, really capable. But it, it's become harder and harder these days to know where we're going to meet our buyer, what channels are going to work. Mm -hmm. Every Every buyer I'm hearing is more different. How do you view how you meet the buyer in the most personalized way? So it's an, it is the $64 million question, quite literally, isn't it? I think, I think a starting point for me is always understanding the need or the pain point or the problem that we're solving. And then to understand who is it that has that pain point or what is their experience of it? And in a complex business, uh, I work you know, in a cybersecurity company, we have three main personas we focus on. We focus on security, risk managers, and procurement executives, three very different types of people, by the way. And they all have a role to play in shaping and guiding a decision. Ultimately, we're making the CISO the hero. So the hero in this case is the chief information security officer who, as it turns out, in the area of third-party cyber risk, has often felt like they're on the back foot. They're having to defend the patch because they are not able to effectively manage this huge population, more than 5,000 vendors and suppliers typically in a large enterprise. They're expected to protect every single one of those. It's an impossible task. So they need help. And that's why that problem exists. And we show up saying, basically, the way you've been trying to solve this problem in the past is clearly not working. Let's talk about a new way of doing things. And as ever, the most effective way of reaching any buyer is to bring something new to the table that they haven't seen or experienced somewhere else that challenges the status quo, that provokes a reaction and a response in a, in a responsible way. But you want to start there. And so one of the things that, that I think is very obvious now is that buyers have their own places to go to learn about solutions for problems that they deal with. And many times it is now communities. It's now peer groups. It's no longer I read it on this website, this newsletter, perhaps more traditionally, whereas marketers think about those channels. I think increasingly we have to think about people as channels and how are we activating and equipping people to operate as channels for us so that our message gets propagated, not through our direct efforts, because we'll never spend enough money, Randy. We'll never get enough budget, no matter how great we are at forecasting. We have to activate others to operate on our behalf. Traditionally, we thought about channels, resellers, that type of indirect selling. But I believe that there's something more fundamental, which is people to people. That's the true peer to peer marketing that's now starting to happen. And what is it that really equips people to do that? It's actually around the right content. If you have the right story to tell, then you're off to the races and you can start to get people excited and engaged and bring people towards you that you don't even know exist today. But the people you know, know people, and those people know people, and that's how you start to build this thing more organically. So you you started this segment by telling people about how the, the company had been in a rut, brought you in, mm -hmm. and I yep. know that you just had you know one of your best quarters ever. So congratulations on that. Thank you. When when you take what you just guided us on, can you give us an example of a content asset or an approach people to people making that connection that a specific campaign that's really allowed you to break through? I think there's probably a couple of areas I would go at. One is thought leadership, which is a little overused as a term, is nevertheless 
a really important facet of any marketer's role, in my opinion. If you're not bringing an insight that is showing people something that they didn't appreciate previously or couldn't have identified before, that's crucially important. And I think for many of us, we want to show up as authorities in markets around our domain. We are experts in our domain. We often find it difficult to get other people to see that, particularly when we're a very small startup. Like, how do you get to other people to pay attention? And I have to take a leaf out of your book, Randy, because one of the ways that you've been effective at driving interest and demand for Uberflip has been through a really great book that I read recently, um, which is, uh, forgive my audience here, called Fuck Content Marketing. Um, it's provocative, right? It's in your face, but it is packed full of insights explaining to people in very easy to understand ways why things work or why things don't work. And I think often as CMOs, we have to be able to distill out what is the essence of what we're bringing to the marketplace? Why should people care about that? And how will they find out about it? So in our particular case, I'll just draw attention to the Dummies Guide to Third-Party Cyber Risk Management, which was an asset that we built just in the last quarter. It's been phenomenally successful as a top of funnel asset. And yes, we do still think about top of funnel, middle and bottom of funnel. We just don't assume that buyers will traverse those three layers in that sequence as we would like them to, because they are people and therefore they operate randomly. Nonlinear customer journeys is really the the name of the game today. But assets really do help to create connection points. Um, So I would point to that and I would also say, why not latch onto something that's really driving your world from an external point of view? It doesn't matter whether you have the perfect solution, you need to be in the conversation. In our world, ransomware. And ransomware as a service, which is a super interesting topic of itself, turns out to be something that's really engaging for people who are worrying about third parties and data breaches because over two thirds of data breaches come from these third parties and they've never really protected themselves against that before. So a few different approaches, I think, there, Andy. I, I love that word, randomness. I even found that dummy's guide on your website. Talk about random and, uh, and running around. Uh, and I think that's because what I found is you're, you're using it in a clever way as both as, as a complete asset, but also broken down as different assets. I found it as a mm-hmm. checklist somewhere. But I was it was even almost a nostalgic throwback. I remember there was a time when everyone was do, doing a dummy's book, and then I hadn't seen it in a while. And I saw it on your website, and it and it looked new and polished, and I was I was pretty uh, pretty intrigued. So uh, I think we have to catch people off guard. It sounds like you're doing that. It sounds like you're meeting them in ways that that are meaningful. Uh, we're gonna keep you around for a couple more questions, Peter, but we'll take a break here on the marketer's journey. A word Peter dropped in there was randomness, and it is a fantastic way to describe the challenge we have engaging with buyers. We wish that every buyer would just follow some nurture. Let's send them an email this week and another one the week after, and eventually they'll buy. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. As much as we wanna control the buyer journey, all we can do is guide the buyer journey. And we need to do this by having content that the customer can select. But the first thing we need to do is we need to filter it down to what might be applicable to them. Too many of us send people to our websites and say, here's all our content, find what you need. What we need to do is give them choice, but a finite set of choices. When we do that, we ensure that the buyer can engage at their pace with the randomness that they want and the control that we provide.
Peter, we have hit on your career journey, buyer journey. Now I'm going to hit you with some questions that kind of touch on all of these. Uh, the first one, thinking about how you got to the CMO gig, but maybe now looking at the next CMO, maybe this person's on your team today. Are they hmm. coming from more of a general background tour of duty, if you will, or is it more about a specialty today that makes someone rise to the top? Ultimately, a marketing leader has to be a domain expert in marketing. And that's the first thing to say. And there are many ways to get to that place. But in my view, you want to have made your name in the function that you're in before you take that next step. And that will define how people think about buying you. What are they buying you for? It's what you've just done, what you've proved yourself to do. So there are many routes to the CMO, in my opinion. But make sure you are a master of your domain before you take the next level. I like those words that, you know, they're, they're purchasing you, they're, they're investing in you. I mean, we talked a lot about that today with the, the CFO mindset as well, of course. All right. Next question for you. We, we hit on content and we hit on your dummies book. What though do you think makes for great content today? What gets you to click through when someone's targeting you? I think relevance and although it's an overused word, personalization, the more that someone can demonstrate, they understand where I'm coming from what my issues are, the more likely I am to consume their content. I think of it like this. If you can own the pain, you will be the first person asked to provide a solution. So own the pain. Demonstrate you understand the pain first, and you will get the opportunity to provide a solution. I love that. And, and you weaved right into my, my next question, second last question for you here today which is we, we hear this personalization term thrown all over the place and you've already given some qualification to it. Five years ago, personalization was I know your first name. What actually makes for a personalized experience today? I think it's actually about context. It's about demonstrating you understand the bigger picture than the obvious. The reality is we all know that people can get our first names and second names right if they have a modicum of intelligence. And a, and a decent process, but it's much harder to demonstrate you understand some history without it becoming intrusive. So knowing, for example, that people are part of other communities, knowing that they're connected to other people actually creates a tremendous sense of confidence. It can be a little scary, but if it's done the right way, it creates confidence to say, you get my peeps, you know where I'm at, you know who I am. Now I'm more interested. Now I'm more ready to listen. If you don't go beyond that first level, I'm afraid you're going to get discarded with all the rest. So well put. All right. Last one for you today is we talked about various journeys. How do you make time for the personal side? How do you balance you know, the busy commitments of a CMO? You said it up front. This is a hard work you sign up for with True. things that may matter to you personally or your family. Yeah. And I think everybody has the challenge, don't they? And the reality is, in my experience, it's very different from everyone. There's no real cookie cutter answer to that question. I think you have to learn the rhythms of your personal life and try and fit within them. Just a simple example for me, I'm an early morning person. My wife is not such an early morning person. That's an opportunity for me to get some email done first thing in the morning before it's really an issue. So, you know, when we're vacationing, I know for many people, it's like, oh, this is anathema. Surely on a vacation, you'd never touch your phone to look at anything. Um, well, no, sadly, we all know that's not really the case. So how do you do it? I think you do it by complementing kind of the other people in your life wherever possible and try to be fully present with them when you are with them. Like don't be half present all the time, be fully present for the less of the time. It, in my experience, seems to have a much bigger impact. 
That's great advice. You know, nothing worse than when our, you know, spouse or kid asks us if we can get off our phone. You know, they, they realize that means they don't have all of you. And, and I think it's something we got to try and avoid. Peter, this has been a great combo. I can't thank you enough for sharing your journey. For those tuning in for the first time, catching this episode, every marketer's journey is a little different. Check out a lot of the other CMOs who have contributed. And as your journey takes shape, hopefully one day you'll join us to share it here on The Marketer's Journey. Thanks so much, Randy. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.